Welcome to Brain and a Vat. Uh, today we have a rather unique show. Um, so we normally spend time talking to philosophers about philosophical topics. And today we're going to be speaking to an artist in a philosophical manner. Now, you've heard of uh, the one-name icons, uh, Prince, Madonna, and Sting. I bring you Dom. Now, Dom is going to be talking about her exhibition, um, which is uh, 2000 and late in 2020 hindsight. And we're going to start off by talking about a particular piece, um, Oscars and late. Um, Dom, take it away. Oscar and late actually was the first piece of uh, 2000 and late in 2020 hindsight. It was kind of the intro piece that uh, started everything off. Basically, what I found very, very uh, compelling was seeing a picture of Gwyneth Paltrow and Harvey Weinstein together. She's draped over him and uh, the entire painting, um, I mean, the, that picture of them, I, I remember seeing it, you know, years ago. And then I saw it again, I, research, I purposely researched it, I looked at it again in 2020 hindsight, and the shift was very interesting to see because I, when I first saw it, I thought, you know, what a powerful man and this beautiful woman. And then I, looking at it in 2020 hindsight, I thought, ew, this, you know, fat, gross, um, you know, rapist pervert with this beautiful, uh, you know, I mean, beautiful slash controversial because sellout slash uh, used slash um, uh, product of Hollywood. And everything was cast under cynicism in that moment, you know, the legitimacy of the Oscar win and, and everything. And who really holds the power when one wins an Oscar? And so I decided, you know, I, that's why I put together an Oscar as the figure, the female figure, the Oscar, because when um, uh, the Oscar is, has all this gloss slapped on it and it's uh, draped all over this, this powerful man that's, uh, that's, you don't know where the gratitude has come in. What has she done? All these questions arise in your head, but what's, what's behind the gloss? What's really going on there? What really happened? Uh, for that Oscar win, and like it kind of diminishes the gloss to a, a uh, icky kind of sordid sexual um, predatory kind of sellout when the Oscars is meant to be this celebrated, exciting event that everyone would sit and wait who's gonna who's the winner it's 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 the best of the best of the best movies that change your life. They're meant to be, uh, they're meant to symbolize that. And then you see this woman, you know, a symbol of purity. Women are, you know, these uh, celebrated uh, queens, essentially, but in the context, and she's won this, uh, she's an Oscar. She's, you know, she, she's embodying the ultimate uh, victory. You know, it's the ultimate victory and pride, um, you know, an actress uh, can win. And yet, and at first, you know, in 2000 and late, you'd see it as, oh, um, she's, uh, you know, with this powerful man and she's one. Actually, you, would, you wouldn't even notice the powerful man. You would just think, oh, one of those uh, powerful men. I, I, I didn't know who Harvey Weinstein was, by the way, back then. I only knew who Gwyneth Paltrow was. And I thought, oh, no, you know, she's surrounded by all these admiring uh, people. But then in 2020 hindsight, everything completely changed. So seeing an image that's wrong in 2020 hindsight, but covered in gloss 
so that you don't have to uh, really address the sordidness going on underneath. So there's an interesting tension that the work brings out. On the one hand, there's a sense of, are we viewing something with the correct moral vision in 2020? Um, in other words, have we discovered um, what was clearly a wrong thing in the past? Or do we have some kind of moral bias now because of our own set of events? So, I mean, there's an interesting thing about a figure like Weinstein, because at the time, I mean, he was celebrated as this uh, super producer. So, you know, Miramax were involved in some of the greatest films of the 90s. You know, um, Pulp Fiction um, was sort of, you know, came, comes under that, that cover. Um, whenever anyone would see a Miramax sort of title screen, the expectation would be this is going to be a great indie movie. And Miramax played a big role in lobbying to win Oscars. So, I mean, one of the controversies at the time was that Shakespeare in Love um, won an Oscar for Beck's picture while being a bit of a mediocre movie in comparison to what else was in contention. And the feeling was that, you know, Harvey Weinstein was this, um, as you say, very powerful mogul kind of, you know, running campaign so that his films would, would be successful to Oscars because that would have this reflected glory on his production company and, uh, you know, lead to more ticket sales. Um, but at the time, as you say, that, that was all seen as, you know, part of the Hollywood game and that being surrounded by beautiful actresses um, was, was expected. So is the 2020 hindsight, are we projecting our own mores um, unfairly uh, or are we discovering something that was actually abhorrent at the time? It's whose opinion that goes viral that also dictates what is right and what is wrong today. So I can't say for every single, each person that looks at this piece right now, this Oscar, that looks at Oscar and right now, I can't say if I don't want, I didn't want to put it in a position where they would decide, oh my God, we hate this disgusting fat man with this, uh, you know, innocent or, or uh, complicit, whatever she is, woman. I, or Oscar, you know, defiling the whole meaning of Oscars. It's all ruined now. I didn't want to do that. An opinion can change pending the time, the geographical location, the political climate. It can change completely. The whole purpose of my exhibition is so that people can decide for themselves. They need to look at it, but they need to remember. They have to remember and say, um, I remember this back then. I thought of it this way back then. Today, how do I think of it? So something I'm quite curious about is why you chose this period of time. Um, I mean, I can understand if, that's, if, it, if it fits within your lifespan. So that would be within your lifespan where a shift happened. Um, is, then is the work supposed to appeal to s people with a similar age, so with a similar lifespan? Or do you think there's other shifts that have happened over time that have been as important? Or do you think this is a particularly important shift in time that's happened over the last 20 years, a shift in mores? I'm so happy you asked that. Definitely not uh, age relative, because uh, the reason I chose 2000 and late, I mean, courtesy of Black Eyed Peas, actually, because uh, it was, as you remember, Fergie who coined the, that term in uh, Boom Boom Pal. So I was basically just thinking, uh, what, what, you know, there's 90s nostalgia, like, you know, the roaring 20s. Uh, what would to this period, 2000s, what would this be referred to as? And what, what, how would people see, how, how do people see the 2000s? 
what, what do you think it is about this shift in the last 20 years that's quite unique? Um, I mean, if, if you think about it, there, there've been lots of shifts in mores over time. I imagine in the 50s, um, is, would that be called the baby booming era? Um, going into the 60s, um, uh, the hippie 60s, very different kind of uh, shift. Um, Drugs and, and medicine, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then going into 80s and 90s, um, there've been shifts at every point. Um, I, I'm curious what you think makes this shift very interesting and why you chose that. The 2000s, I found it, uh, I found it to be very dangerous, a kind of dangerous shift. The surge of technology, it's the surge of uh, this digital and, nars- and the public viewing of it, the, the opportunity to have it put on display in public that causes a kind of uh, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the word I want to use there because hypocrisy is, is what I would actually name the 2000s. The period of hypocrisy where we completely forgot who we are, forgot our characters, we forgot everything and we based it off of a meme that's gone, gone viral and we're living a certain way. But then all of a sudden, all these, uh, you know, self-righteousness, all this self-righteousness came out, all this... Um, judgment came out and the opportunity to judge on a mass scale became possible. So that is what the difference was. And I, 90s, you look upon it uh, with nostalgia, it's sweet. And, and, um, but then 2000s, it's more of a loss of our identity and we're for, and for forgetting our history in a very ironic sense since uh, we have such meticulous documentation of it. Like we saw exactly how we used to speak. Uh, 10 years ago, we have chats on our phones that we can go through and see people can, people are revealing and actually that's, people are being outed now with screenshots of stuff they said years ago and it's being posted now and careers are being ruined over it. And yet people are acting like they never were like that. So I'd say the 2000s was, it was so interesting for me to see that, but you used to love this and think it's cool or think that that's right. And you were, and uh, you've, and that's, that's how you, that was you as a human being. And then in such a short period of time, it wasn't, it's not age that made you learn better or know better or wisdom. It's literally the most uh, superficial kind of gaining of knowledge, a very, it's not wisdom. It's just a superficial gaining of knowledge that made people intolerant. So the term even 2000 and late, like you're so 2000 and late, there, like 90s, there, there's no Im- indication of that you're, you're, you're out of date or you're uh, out of it or you're, in, you know, it's just 90s nostalgia. Like there's, and any of the, of the other, other periods, but 2000s, it's like you're out of date. You're out of touch with uh, the times. So it's all about being, keeping up with the times, keeping up with public opinion, keeping up with what's right as per that moment right then. And because it's changing so fast, it's like schizophrenic and uh, polarizing. And that's how cancel culture, the, you know, is uh, running rampant because we basically have lost our identity. I think, I feel like uh, a meme can dictate whether or not you are for BLM or not, for example. If you're for, you know, ALM or BLM, a meme can dictate that. 
So I'd like to turn to um, an, another one of your works, Nipplegate. Um, and what's interesting about the work, firstly, you, you reference the sort of 2000s as being this digital medium, um, but, but you work in a more traditional medium being paint. But the, the, the work itself is from a digital image. Um, would you like to tell us a bit about you know, the nature of the work um, and, and how it's played a role in the, the greater exhibition? So Nipplegate and Late um, was, it, it, it's actually the fifth piece that I did in the 15 piece collection. But um, before that, my exhibition was very stagnant. I, I felt like, um, I mean, I was, I had run out of instances, 2008 instances that were worth putting into 2020 hindsight. So I was just brains, I was literally with a friend brainstorming and I had remembered, and it was it stuck in my mind that when Victoria Beckham, and I know that the whole white t-shirt nipple uh, nipple fashion statement, it's been going on for decades, but I remembered a certain instance when Victoria Beckham, she went out wearing no bra and wearing a t white t-shirt and she was just walking, you know, paparazzi took a shot of her and, you know, there was like the kind of, uh, oh my God, she's running around, we can see her nipples whatever. So I thought that was cool. I really liked the, I, I enjoyed that instance because she managed to take something um, I, that people criticize and she made it cool, which I really admire when someone has the ability to do that. That's where you know that they're uh, someone of substance. So she, I, I was just brainstorming. It was not a big deal. I uh, went with a friend and I jumped into the, my pool and I, uh, was not wearing a bra and a white t-shirt. I was playing around with images because I love aesthetic as well. And I thought, why not portray? That was the original plan was to portray Victoria Beckham, uh, like a kind of controversy of, you know, the white, t the, the white uh, nipple, whatever, white t-shirt nipples in, a, um, in, this, in today's context. I loved the shoot. I was so, uh, I felt, uh, I loved the images were beautiful to me. They were so beautiful. And for no other reason, other than that I just liked how it aesthetically looked, I, I posted it on uh, this public account. And so I just posted it up there and I, I, I'm, I'm so secretive when it comes to when I'm creating work and I'm uh, doing my paintings, not a single painting uh, before my before I introduced it to you know family and friends, not a single one had seen the light of day. No one had you know, no one was allowed to take any pictures. Whoever friend whoever came over, but I just decided I'm just going to post this because I felt so enamored with uh, with the shoot. It looked beautiful to me. That was it. It's literally that simple. <laughs> so I uh, I posted it, and then I uh, my phone went crazy. And uh, I, I, I left my phone because I knew that, you know, a couple of people, friends would, you know, be concerned or whatever. But then I, I look at my phone after a while and I find everyone's going wild. It caused a huge, huge uh, controversy, to say the least. It, it really, it severely impacted where I was, where I live, where I was living. It impacted... Um, what I what I'm doing with my life it impacted how I see my social circle it impacted how I see my entire world I uh, received all kinds of harassment all kinds of uh, 
you know, threats and uh, as in for your own good uh, and, uh, and, you know, sexual advances, all kinds of things. And I just thought, you know, this is such, this is so unfair. You know, everyone's acting like this is so shocking, whatever it's because it's in public. Ironically, that's why I called it Nipplegate because people were acting like it was something that was meant to be kept secret. The views on that public account was 180 something and it went to 18,000 people in one day. And uh, so basically the overall reaction showed me that people are, are hypocrites. They're such hypocrites because I've seen so much crazy stuff, but because it's done in private, not really that private, but in, around the right people, that that makes it okay and that the stuff that they were doing what, what in my opinion was morally wrong and i wasn't harming anyone it was my decision if i was going to be fired from my job then so be it but that was my decision i be, i basically became 2000 and late because all these people saw this picture of me it was uh it was it went it, it, and it was it's it's intimate yeah it's i mean it's an imprint of my nipples in a white t-shirt um, like that is an intimate view so uh, people saw this, you know, uh, guys, uh, I was told that guys were licking their phones and saying all kinds of like, you know, vulgar things to people, my friends, that they, you know, what, what people want to do to do to me after they saw that photo. When the viral life cycle ended, there was this quiet that was left, but with a kind of, um, a kind of uh, slump. I did the worst thing I, uh, a, a girl, you know, like me could do it living in, um, in where I lived. I did the worst thing possible. The worst thing, you know, showing yourself uh, your, uh, your body, uh, nude or semi nude. Cause it was covered by a white t-shirt. But anyway, I did the worst thing possible and I thought, oh my, and, and I didn't care. I genuinely, genuinely didn't care what people would think. My mom then came to visit me, and so we were sitting, and I was I was really upset, and but I was quiet. I wasn't I didn't tell her about it, and then she just finally asked me, "What's wrong? Tell me what's going on." And then my mom said, "Show me this picture. Show it to me." So I said, "Okay," and so <laughs> I was so down that I didn't even like I didn't care what my mom would say, and that's like saying something. So then I showed her the picture, and she looked at it, and she said. She just was quiet and she looked at it and then she looked at me and she said, you keep painting. And in this like angry way, like you, you keep doing it as in like, fuck everyone else. She would never say the word fuck, but that's what she, that was like tone. So I completely advocate for awkward, disturbing, unsettling, uncomfortable, because that's where, when the truth comes out. So that's the small window that happened, that truth, pure, pure, pure truth, not his truth or her truth or their truth, just truth. And the more awkward or disturbing or, you know, uncomfortable, the better, because that's what truth is. So Nipplegate and Lane was that for me, was revealing this kind of, was a very, uh, well, inappropriate, vulgar, repulsive, was another word I got, uh, uh, image of me. What helped me uh, finish, continue the exhibition post Nipplegate and Late was this observation of intolerance that I've seen grow and it's from both sides. And this is not just, this has now spread. I'm saying Nipplegate and Late, but it's spread. Like this experience with Nipplegate and Late like opened pathways to spread for me, kind of like a spider diagram of the different issues 
that are going on because then I thought, okay, what else is going on? And I realized, you know, there's so many situations where, you know, what are, what are the, uh, what is the backlash of intolerance with different situations? There seems to be a very interesting relationship between you as the artist and your audience, especially when you were discussing Nipplegate, not here on the show, but in your exhibition, um, in your narration, you said that before Nipplegate, you were, you had this drought, you had this artistic drought, you weren't able to create the pieces that you really wanted to create. And then after Nipplegate and after this flood of negative attention and then your mother's approval and the realizations that you got around that, then suddenly you were able to create again. Um, so it sounds like... It sounds so romantic, you know, my mother's approval then opened the pathways. Anyway, well, sorry. Well, well, what I'm thinking is not that your mother's approval opened the pathways, but that there's this very, very sophisticated relationship between you and your audience. For an Armenian mother to tell her daughter, keep painting after seeing a photo of, uh, of her with her nipples showing, that's insane. Like insane. And that made me really realize that my mother saw the importance of the art that even no matter how offensive or vulgar or inappropriate or rude to your cultural surroundings or whatever, you know, or your surroundings, what your audience, no matter how badly your audience takes it, this is about the art. You never compromise your art. And, you know, the art, art is what will save, save humanity. The art is what will save us in the end of the day because art doesn't compromise for the sake of other people's will. It doesn't bend to other people's will. Otherwise, it's just propaganda. What's interesting about writing is that there is always this tension between writing your own work for the work that you want to write, the piece of work that you want to write. And if you want to make a living from it, trying to sell your work. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting compromise that authors have often made. Um, I've always come down much closer to your view, um, which is that I don't want to sacrifice what I put into my books um, in a way that will make them sell better. Um, and it's, it's, it's curious because um, in my other life, I'm a marketer. So I tell people how to sacrifice their ideal, their, their, um, their values in order to make what they, they, they're producing sell better. Um, so I understand what I would need to do in order to make my book sell better, but I choose not to. So I, I do sympathize with your position. Um, but still, I'm very curious about this relationship between audience and, and your vision. So, so, so if you look at the chronology, okay, so you had this drought and then you received this negative feedback, you received an incredible amount of understanding from your mother, and then you were able to produce and now you've got this website that has your pieces on it. Um, and you've asked us not to make that website publicly available. So um, on your website, you say that um, for every person that has it, it's password protected for every person who has access to that website, they can refer to more people and those people can each refer to more people. And I, I think that's a very interesting way of dealing with this problem that you illustrated right at the beginning. You said, what, what encapsulates the 90s is narcissism and virality and 
the public view of me. And you're trying to get away from that by saying, no, I, d- I don't want my work to go viral. I don't you know, want what, to see what it. What the 2000s, you mean? Yes, yes, apologies. You, what, what, what you, you don't want your work to go viral. You don't want, you don't want um, that public eye on your work. Um, but what you do want is a personal connection with your audience. So the people who do go to your website, you want a very personal connection to them through other people that have been to your website, through others, through others, to you. And you want each person to engage in that work in a very personal way. You want an intimate connection with each of those people. And I think that's a very interesting way of dealing with the problem of the artist who wants an audience, but at the same time doesn't want a public audience. They want a private audience. They want a one-on-one interaction with their viewer. My artistic drive is driven by the need for, for someone to understand me. And when people misunderstand me, you know, I get very churlish, very bitter. I'm a bitter shrew. You know, you'll find me saying, you'll never see a single word come out of me again. I'll never talk to that person. I'll never show them anything. And that's part of why the, the website is password protected because after this betrayal that I suffered from after Nipplegate and late, I, I it was a betrayal full, full on, you know, not everyone gets to, gets to see my arts. Not everyone gets to um, be enlightened by my point of view and what I'm the message, the urgent message I'm, I'm, I'm uh, trying to say. And I want to be able to choose who gets to, and I want those people to choose because then a kind of, you know, kindred spirits then can gather together more easily because when you're throwing everything out there, you're saying, oh, whoever can catch it or whoever, you know, and it's not about whoever. Art is also a deeply personal thing. Um, many, you know, I'm not the only first person to say that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's so intimate. Like you, you've, uh, you're pouring your heart out on there, you know, and it's art that you created because you have something inside you that's been bothering you or disturbing you or making you feel like like uh making you feel so out of place that you that you need to get out like an exercise out of yourself and you want to put it out there so that someone else can understand you and um you can find that other those other people that understand you and when you meet them you feel so excited and so happy because you're like oh oh shit i'm not alone you know, I have some, you know, I have all the, you know, someone else is out there, they get it. And that's why I'm so happy I met you guys. Like, you, you get it. And I wanted people to put that extra effort of choosing who, like, I invited my close friends and family to view the exhibition. And I wanted them to be able to choose who did they think for them to sit back and contemplate who, who would enjoy this and for them to carefully choose two people. Because that way, they will think what kind of person is going to want to take the time to sit and appreciate and, and view this and who wants to have their mind open as well. Because there's people who don't want to open their minds. They don't want that. They are set in their ways and they just, that's just how they want to live, li- live life. But then there's people that want to open their mind and they want to keep their minds open. They want to keep learning. They want to keep discussion open. They want to keep talking about it. So I'd like to yeah. talk about um, one of your other pieces, which it's got an interesting backstory behind it. It's called Dumb Girl and Late. And um, what you've painted is a still from One Night in Paris, the sort of uh, 
infamous uh, movie um, of Paris Hilton, um, infamous in a couple of interesting ways in the sense that it was um, leaked footage of a sex tape with her and her then boyfriend. And uh, you sort of describe how the, the film um, has, a, has a director's credit uh, online, which is uh, the boyfriend's name, uh, even though um, the sort of image were, was leaked um, with, without Paris's consent. Um, and what's interesting is the title that you've used, which is this um, to imply that you know Paris is this dumb girl, partly for letting the footage leak or for having been filmed in the first place, and how our attitudes towards that have shifted. Um, I think what's interesting about a lot of the work in your exhibition is you're dealing with this tension around sexuality and the public expression of that and how our mores have shifted in some ways and might be a little bit at odds with each other because at the one hand, there's a sense of celebrating feminine sexual energy and this feeling that you know, one ought not to be ashamed um, about a display of your body, but at the same time taking, um, let's say, the spreading of those sorts of images um, very seriously now. So let's say, you know, prior sort of celebrity nude leaks would have been viewed um, with a sort of light sense of humor in a way, and now maybe are viewed quite differently. Um, so I'd be interested to hear more about that work. In 2008, Paris Hilton was seen as this dumb girl that, as the quote uh, says, um, if you're dumb enough to have, you know, sex on camera, then you're too dumb to have sex ever again. Today, you would never be able to speak to a uh, victim of revenge porn, AKA dumb girl and late. She was 18 years old at the time. Uh, the, the guy who did it, Rick Salomon, um, was 33. She was 18 years old and yet everyone was laughing at it. Today, you'd never see that, never. But I wanted to, you know, compare the, um, the contrast of, oh, back then, People saw Paris as this kind of, you know, dumb girl. And then today, though, how do you see Paris Hilton today? Because I did not see any, uh, oh, my God, we were horrible to Paris. No uh, ad admission. You'd expect better from the media who's now on their righteous high horse, you know, um, celebrating femininity. Uh, women, uh, you know, showing their nipples in public and being all, yes, we have to be tolerant. We have to be tolerant. We have to be tolerant. So then it turns into, we are intolerant if you are not tolerant. You know, like, you know, that the Karl Popper um, intolerance kind of paradox. So that's what I really was curious to see other people's reactions to having Carousel, to going back Reflecting again, how would you see Paris Hilton today? Would you see her as a victim or survivor of revenge porn? She talks about what happened to her in 2020 hindsight. And um, of course, you, you feel like, you know, logically, she should be uh, apologized to. She should be, you know, people should celebrate her now, you know, and see her as a kind of warrior. We normally have discussions with philosophers and you're actually our first non-philosopher guest. And it's very interesting because the, the topics that, that have come up in discussion are what philosophers would call contingent facts. In other words, they're, they're facts about the world, but they could have been different. And they are different over time, so they shift. So it's people's views, it's um, popular culture, it's norms. Um, 
and philosophers are are more interested in um, what we call necessary truths. In other words, truths that couldn't be different. Um, and so, when you ask, like, how do we how do we react when we see the work and when we listen to the narrations associated with the work? How do we how do we react to that? Um, I think my reaction whenever I see anything that is rooted in popular culture or rejection of popular culture or an engagement with popular culture is I always resist it because as a philosopher, I'm aware that our views shift over time, but the truth doesn't change. And so it can't be the, it can't ever be the case that what is true at any given time is we can have such certainty that this is the truth full stop with a capital T. It would require much more discussion. And I think what's valuable about your work is that you are encouraging people to reflect on their, their views at a particular time and see that they were different at a previous time. And then couple that with Mark's point that the question is, does that now mean that our, our views now are the right ones? And you said, well, no, 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 no. You're not, you're not saying to people what you believe now is correct. You're just encouraging people to engage in this reflection, this reflective equilibrium on their views. This is something that is a very philosophical, it's a, very, it's, it's a deeply philosophical process. This is what we as philosophers try to do. So we're constantly trying to question both our views and the views of, of cultural society at the time. Um, but it also makes us very critical whenever there's a given social movement it makes us very critical of that kind of by default. Um, I think it's very rare to encounter a philosopher today who, when faced with a social movement, immediately agrees with it. Um, that may have changed recently. Maybe there are some philosophers that are doing that. But on the whole, I think in general, we resist cultural views um, just because they just seem so rooted in our contingencies, rooted in the way we've been raised, in the way society is evolving around us, but could change. As you said, Harvey Weinstein, the Harvey Weinstein saga could flip on its head um, in 20 years time or in 10 years time, who knows? Um, so, so given that, and given that philosophers are trying to ask, well, what is the truth with a capital T um, kind of overall? That's what we're interested in. Whenever we face lots of small truths with a small T, we, we're very skeptical, very cynical. And so when I, when I encountered your work, um, I looked at it more through the lens of another artist. So I was just curious about your story and curious about the way that you were portraying, um, the way that you had engaged with your culture and your culture had engaged with you, um, rather than presenting um, kind of an argument for the way things are and, and what people should believe. So yeah, that, that, that was the way I encountered your work. Well, I'm so uh, very touched by what you just said, by the way, Jason. I really appreciate that. And I'm, uh, it's enlightening as well to hear your perspective. It's, and uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm very touched right now. It's fun for us to sort of use these philosophical tools while engaging with you know, real world subject matter, not things that are just mere floating ideas, but ideas that have been concretized into you know, to paint and canvas. Um, so thank you very much for joining us.